What's up, my friends? Kyle here. I want to take just a moment to let you all know about the Alaska Marine Conservation Council. This is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting and promoting the integrity of Alaska's marine ecosystems and the health of ocean-dependent communities. The Alaska Marine Conservation Council plays both leading and supporting roles in advancing policy and management solutions for healthy fisheries and marine ecosystems in the North Pacific through federal and state processes. Among other leading issues, foundational goals include reducing bycatch, protecting habitat, bolstering diverse fishery access for community-based fishermen, supporting low-impact harvest methods, and prioritizing science-based management. The Alaska Marine Conservation Council is a project of the Nell Newman Foundation. The Nell Newman Foundation supports this podcast, and they support great work all over the world. So check out the Nell Newman Foundation and the Alaska Marine Conservation Council. This podcast is also brought to you by RPM Training. RPM Training is a NorCal-based active lifestyle brand founded in the idea that legit, purposeful, functional training is the foundation of a truly full, adventurous life. As many of you know, I've been on the road from Colorado through Wyoming up now into Montana, and the workout equipment that I've brought with me is a dumbbell and a jump rope. The jump rope is made from RPM Training, and I swear to God, it is the best jump rope in the world. It will make you feel like Rocky Balboa, all right, from Rocky One, the first time, back when he was in his prime, when he was a strapping young stallion, all right? I have a buddy, actually, who went to Sylvester Stallone's party once, and he went to it, and Sylvester Stallone had an ice art piece made out of him, and it served drinks, apparently. That's how you know you've made it, or you're a crazy egomaniac who gets ice chiseled of your face at your own party anyway i love rpm's jump ropes and i want to give you a workout right now uh it's a little bit of a challenge but this is a workout that i've done recently it's just a 20 minute workout uh as many reps as possible you're going to do 100 double unders with the jump rope you're going to do 20 push-ups 30 lunges and 40 sit-ups so all you need is the jump rope you can head over to rpm training com. Type in the code name Kyle10, get 10% off, and then do this workout below. I'm going to keep it in the bio as well. And if you do this workout enough, one day you will throw a party with yourself chiseled in ice with Dom Perignon and freaking Patron just going straight into the mouths of people who want to be just like you. So thank you to RPM Training for supporting this podcast. All right. And finally, this podcast is made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals. And you know why I said it was made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals? Because it actually was. Their founder was the dude who convinced me to start this podcast more than four years ago. So shout out to Brendan. He is a good dude, and they make great products that I can stand behind wholeheartedly. They make CBD coconut oil. They make CBD face masks. One of my personal favorite products of theirs is the tincture. I put a few drops of it on my tongue before I go to bed. It helps me sleep better, and it helps me with sore muscles. You can head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name Kyle10, and have at it kids with 10% off discount code. They also support the book club, 
So thank you to everyone who has signed up for that. It's been a really fun experience. Um, sending you books that I love just once a month. I send you a book that I've been digging as well as a CBD tincture at a greatly discounted price. So you can head over to kyle.surf to check out the book club. This month it is Atomic Habits. That's it, everyone. This episode of the podcast is with my friend Charles Post. Charles is an ecologist and filmmaker drawn to stories anchored to the confluence of society's relationship with wild and rapidly changing natural environments. After spending nearly a decade studying at UC Berkeley, Charles earned a bachelor's and then master's degree in ecology under the mentorship of Dr. Mary Power, which set him on a course to combine science, conservation, and storytelling. Please give it up for Charles Post. Yeah, um, people from Montana, they're tough as nails. They are, yeah. I mean, she's sixth generation and her family's from a small town. This is your wife? Yes, my wife, Rachel Pohl. Um, yeah, and there's sixth generation Montana, sixth generation. Wow. Yeah. Scottish farmers initially. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, she just grew up out here hiking around, hiking around skiing, you know, her and her brother are probably two of the more knowledgeable mountain people. Um, but just, yeah, they, they, they do it all, you know, and it's, but it's been really fun because meeting somebody who's so uh, capable and so proficient, uh, it's easy to feel like you don't You're have something to offer. Big puss. <laughs> yeah, you know. But like, here's <laughs> this California surfer coming out here. My it, fingers it, hurt. <laughs> and and I think one of the things that's been so that's been so nice is getting her on the ocean. Yeah. I'm like, so remember those days when I was freaked out on yeah. that ridge. Here we go. Now you're feeling it. Yeah, man. Well, you know? I've, I've experienced that before. I've taken full mountain badasses out into the water, and it's not very big, but the disorientation of the ocean is terrifying to people. Right. To, to be upside down and not know which way is up, and even in, in little waves, like I always say, it doesn't matter what size wave you're surfing. It's just your relationship to that size. Right. You could take someone who's an amazing big wave surfer out into... 20 foot waves and it'll be the equivalent of taking a new surfer out into two or three foot waves. And even without waves, just, just the water and the weather and, and being in a, in a, in an environment that you have to have the eyes to see, yes. right? Like I think one of the things that I've really, um, spent a lot of time working on is just being comfortable, being dry and warm and, in a Montana climate because when you're out in, in the winter and you're in the mountains, even in the fall, you can get these storms blowing where like I got frostbite last year twice while I was bow hunting and you know, I leave the house prepared for negative five, negative 10, knowing I'll be in a tree for a few hours. And then one thing leads to another and it's getting dark and the wind switches and it's negative 20 <laughs> or negative 30. And just, just that knowledge, which for somebody like my wife is so second nature, has that learning curve similar 
to the learning curve that you would have bringing somebody out yeah. at Ocean Beach on a small day. Right. Yeah. There's just a lot going on. The ocean's a very safe place if you go to the right spot. It's right. a very dangerous place if you go to the wrong spot. And right. similarly, I'm sure that you, you know, for me, I have untrained eyes. So I'm just like, oh, mountains. Let's go explore. Dude, this just happened to me. Yeah. In the in the Wind River Range in Wyoming. I went out on a solo hike and dude, I didn't grow up backpacking. Like I don't know the I, I have this thing where I I have a lot of um I, I don't know like some people call it grit. I probably just stupidity, but like with, with weight stuff where I'm like, I wanna have this be harder than it would normally be. So I like bring in way too much food, like way too many clothes, and I have this pack that's from like Fucking Lewis and Clark expeditions, dude. <laughs> just so old. Buffalo hide. Dude, it didn't have a waist strap. Oh, wow. It didn't have a waist yeah. strap, so all the the weight was on my shoulders and scapula. But I, like, get set off. I'm, like, fucking doing this, like, uh, into the wild. Yeah, and then, like, a mile in, I'm, like, ah, my, my shoulder hurts, but I'm too far to go. I've gone too far now. And then I, like, dude, I went in to... You know, it took me a day and a half to get into this amazing lake, and then it starts snowing on me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Wyoming, Upper Mountains, it snows here all the time. Right. And I just felt like such a ding-dong. Like, exactly like the ding-dong who gets sucked out in a riptide, and all the locals on the beach are like, dude, there's a riptide right there. I mean, it's they say if you don't like the weather in Montana, wait 10 minutes. And it's so true. <laughs> That's I mean, funny. Last summer solstice, we had six inches of snow in the yard. Wow. You know, we were headed out to go see some of our great friends, uh, the sisters, uh, Rise in Appalachia. Uh, oh, they're awesome. Super talented. They're playing here in town. Really? Uh, yeah, last summer. They have sexy voices. They're so cool. Oh. Lee and Chloe are some of my favorite humans. They're from... Uh, uh, we're from Atlanta, initially. Atlanta. But they do a lot of music around Louisiana, right? Yeah, New Orleans is where they kind yeah. of cut their teeth. Filthy, dirty south. Exactly. Yeah. I love Rising Appalachia. They're so cool. So yeah, we were running out the door to go see them actually at a friend's uh, place in the Paradise Valley. And I'm looking at my garden that's just getting lit up. By six inches of like wet spring snow or summer snow, and you know it's snow. I was just reading the 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 um, the weather summary for June that Noah puts out, and it was crazy. You know, you, we had uh, certain areas of Montana that reached over 100 degrees in June, and we had certain areas of Montana that received over a foot of snow, wow. and then certain areas of Montana that experienced winds over 60 miles an hour. You know, we probably had winds, you know, solid 50s. You can tell by the way my trees are. <laughs> tied up to the house you know so it's just one of those places that like you know today it's it's gorgeous we're looking uh west to the spanish peaks and you know it's a cl- kind of a classic splitter uh big sky day but before you know it you can have a system just blow through and just ruin your day Dude, it's like you need to bring a <laughs> sun shirt and a down jacket every time you leave the house and we do and we do i mean we literally we do not leave the house especially if we're going later in the day without obviously bear spray depending on where we're going, like a, you know, a, a sat texture of some sort down, you know, gear to keep you dry <laughs> and then like board shorts and sandals, yeah. you know, <laughs> just in case it's super splitter and you can go swimming. I was tripping when I got to Wyoming. I, I was, uh, I was like, dude, people carry bear spray on their waist. Like my dad used to carry a beeper around. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like everyone. And some people carry two because they can be faulty. The wind can shift. Uh, a lot of people will carry like a sidearm and bear spray. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of 
I mean, yeah, and and as as grizzly bears expand their range, it's um, I mean they just youth, had to euthanize unfortunately a bear just outside of Shelby, which is you know in, basically like west of the of the front of the Rockies. So you're getting these bears that are showing up in in very um, kind of new areas. I mean, just part of their historic range, but not places where you'd expect to see grizzly bears. Um, Rachel, my wife and I have seen grizzly bears in the Bridger range, which is the place that there's no grizzly bear signs at many of the trailheads and you wouldn't really expect it. Our neighbor is a grizzly bear biologist and they just had, uh, shared, uh, record, uh, shared data about grizzly bears being seen just like right here in the foothills, Wow! you know, and our neighbor took a picture of a wolf, uh, just like up on the hay field. So there's all these things, whether it's the weather or, you know, you think you're going to like on a mellow hike and most times it is, you know, you can just kind of have those moments where it's like, Nope, you're in Montana and Montana is still pretty wild. Dude. I went to this, uh, bar in Jackson called the million dollar cowboy bar. Oh yeah. Have you heard about that one? I, I was last, the last time that was a a relevant location for me. I was at Alex Yoder's house. Okay. From Patagonia. Yeah. Yeah. Ambassador. One of my best friends. And uh, it was for New Year's, and Kanye West was there. Kanye West has a house in Jackson Hole. I think he just... Yeah, does he? I guess so. Yeah, yeah he had flown in and was at the Cowboy Bar, and people were texting us, and we were like, thank God we're not there. Oh, thank God. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a bar that has saddles at um, as bar stools, and there's a taxidermy grizzly bear standing there, and below it there's a sign that says, this bear is one of the only bears known to have ever been killed by a human without weapons. Do you know about this? No. It's, it's by the bathroom there. Yeah. And, it's, and it says, this was killed by fucking John <laughs> Wild West, whatever. And the dude got attacked by a grizzly, and uh, he bit it in the jugular. And no. It. What? Yeah, dude. That is I took insane. A photo. I took a photo of that, that on my insane. Instagram. Yeah. And I uh, went back to the bar and I was like, I'll take a virgin mojito, please. <laughs> All the sparkling water. Two lime wedges. Yeah, a couple of those cherries, too, please. <laughs> Just got out of the wind. But I got cold. But you know what What was interesting to me, go, you know, going in the winds was kind of like comedic was um, I wasn't really sure if it was a serious situation and I would imagine that you run in because I wasn't that far in, but it started snowing and it was just something that I hadn't prepped for. Right. And I made it out fine and there were other hikers around, but I was laughing about not knowing when to click into emergency gear. Right. And that, how that space is sometimes the most dangerous when you're like, is this a, is this an emergency? And then very quickly it can go into a full emergency and someone like Rachel, your wife, can see those signs much more quickly than an outsider can. Yeah, especially here. I mean there's so there's so many differences between the the Rockies and say the coast range where I grew up in Northern California. Um where'd you grow up? Just north of San Francisco. But spent like most of my scientific years uh in the Mendocino Humboldt area. So kind of in the, in the redwoods there on the coast range. Um, but here you get these systems that just move through, move through so quickly. So not only are you just as somebody who's not, I'm speaking, you know, through, through my wife that, you know, you're used to those unknowns. I mean, for example, today she's skiing and you know, the plan is to get out uh, well before noon. Um, just because there might be, there's a 30% chance of thunderstorms, which could mean nothing, or it could mean 
four inches of snow. Um, so you're just kind of always, you know, thinking about those unknowns. And here, you know, com- compared to a lot of the country, we get really cold temperatures. You know, negative forty, negative fifty. I mean, we had a lot of days. That's not a that's lot. Actually, like um, to me, that's like when someone says like a hundred million light years away. Like right? it means nothing to me because I've never experienced it. It's not in the human like the the software in my brain can't compute it. It's funny because this is my third year living in Montana and I had experienced spates of temperatures that cold moments, you know, like pop out of the car, you're freezing, you go, you know, you're in Yellowstone, you like run around the corner and take a picture or you know, you're pumping gas or whatever type thing. But the moment that really taught me how freaking cold that is was this year we had a few days so we live kind of like at the foot of the greater yellowstone ecosystem spanish peaks are yeah like i said to our west so we're like in the grasslands and we get really windy cold days and it was negative 40 for a few days with wind chill and i had to take the garbage can on the driveway we have like a quarter mile long driveway and i kid you not i was wearing all the right gear but i didn't have my face covered and i get down to our mailbox and you, you, when you're right before you get frostbite, you can feel this burn that is just otherworldly. Like, you know, something bad is happening to your face. And I'm at my freaking mailbox <laughs> thinking like, oh shit, I'm going to die. I am like, I might have to walk to my neighbor's house. Like, more than this, like people are going to know me as Charles, <laughs> the guy who died taking out the mail. Literally, <laughs> you know? And it's like one of those moments where you're like, like I, I need to fucking get in my house yeah. like ASAP. And, and you know, you put your gloves over your face and you're just like, and you know, I luckily just got kind of like nipped. But it was crazy. I was like, I'm taking my freaking garbage out. And this is kind of an intense moment for me, (laughs) you know? So I think you, you keep that in, in the back of your mind as a, as part of the realm of possibility, Yeah, which makes, you know, like I said, I got frostbite. I was hunting 40 minutes from my car. And in that moment, I could feel the backs of my legs where the wind was blowing up the street and hitting my legs as in a tree stand. I, I was like, oh shit, I have to get to my car. And even though in a survival mindset, you're like, my truck's 30 minutes away. It's not that far. When shit's hitting the fan, 30 minutes is... Long time. That's a long time. Yeah. Like 10 minutes is a long... My freaking driveway felt like a long time. Wow. So, so what were you wearing and, and what were you hunting? Bring me into that situation. Yeah. So, um, you know, we are so fortunate in Montana to have relatively healthy wildlife populations obviously we talked about bears which is awesome predators are super important but we also have huge like grazing herds of elk in the area um white-tailed deer mostly in the lowlands and then kind of up in the steppes we have mule deer so i spent a lot of time hunting all three of those species but i've really enjoyed hunting whitetail and we have whitetail that kind of love these cottonwood stands love kind of the margins of the farmlands um you know love our property and our land here. Um, so I'm up in a tree in a cottonwood and I'm wearing down pants, two layers of wool, thick wool, uh, base layers. I'm wearing my Schnees, which is a local boot maker here in town there. They make a variety of boots. Um, but this pair of boots was, uh, rated to negative 30. Um, you know, you're wearing two pairs of gloves two beanies because you're not moving right so it's different when you're hiking this type of weather because you want to be you want you don't want to overheat because sweat kills so when you're sitting 
you're just sweat like, kills. What do you mean by that? You get any moisture on your body. If it's negative 10 and you have a, a merino base layer or a cotton base layer, God forbid you're not wearing one, and you have cold, like moisture that's sitting on your skin, that could, that could kill you. Whoa. You get hypothermia. So that's why they say when you're hiking in cold weather, you never want to sweat. So if you need to stop every 10 minutes and layer, de-layer, air out, do it. Dude, this should be like a public service announcement on billboards. <laughs> yeah, no, it's real. You don't want to – when it's freezing cold, like sweat's your enemy. So you just do not want to sweat. It's different though when you're sitting in a tree because you're not moving. So you're basically just trying to like – you show up warm, Ready to sit, yeah. And you just want to maintain heat. So I mean I had – and for anybody listening who hunts – I can't even imagine the Manitoba or Saskatchewan or Alberta, you know, like you read in the blogs what people, whitetail hunters wear, but it's like everybody's got their concoction of the recipe. I mean, people bring sleeping bags and they'll throw their bottom half in a sleeping bag, like a zero degree bag or negative 20 degree bag and zip it up. So their heads just, people put heaters, they'll make a blind in the tree I got a funny, and put a heater in it. I got a funny story about that. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get back to your story, but I have a buddy named Justin Lee. He's a, a Hawaii bow hunter, super badass, great guy. And he does a lot of multi-day hunts out on the big island. And um, he's like, hey, man, do you think you could get me a sleeping bag from Patagonia? I was like, absolutely. I'd be happy to help you out. So I was like, there are these really lightweight ones that they just came out with. Let me send you one. Yeah. So I sent him this lightweight one. And uh, and he goes out and he, he uses it. And I get myself one, too. And I go camping down in Big Sur with it. And it was kind of weird because it was this sleeping bag that only goes up to your chest and then just is thin – almost like a windbreaker material that goes up to your head. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird, but whatever. Like, Patagonia, this is super lightweight and awesome. And I freeze my fucking ass off in Big Star. I'm like, what is the deal? Like, this is the stupidest product ever. And, I, and then I get a uh, – and then I, like, go onto Patagonia and I talk to one of the people on online. And I was like, what is the deal with the sleeping bag? Like, I just went in Big Star and they're like, oh, no, that's specifically for big wall climbing. Where it's like it weighs nothing and you wear a down jacket as the top and it just covers up to your torso. No like way. you're you're not supposed to use that just for regular <laughs> camping. And then like two months later I talked to Justin, I'm like, Hey, how's that sleeping bag? He's like, Bruh. I went up to the big eye and froze my ass off. I was like, Yeah, it's it's for big wall climbing. <laughs> my bad. That's so classic. Anyway, back to you. So no, yeah. Gonna- so similarly, you know, there's like everybody has these uh these innovations that they've cooked up to to stay warm sitting in a tree and mine had worked well that season. Uh, I was, you know, it's hunting late season, uh, whitetail and, but yeah, in this moment I was prepared for like negative 10. It was probably negative 10 when I left the house. I hunt just like very close to our house on a neighbor's farm and, um, just the wind, the wind changed and it got one thing led to another. There's a deer that I was excited about decided to just stay in the tree a little bit longer, you know, like you have your toe warmers and your hand warmers and you're kind of just like moving around ever so slightly to try to keep some, some warmth cooking. And then the deer just stops and you're like one minute, 10 minute, 30 minutes go by. And then all of a sudden you're freaking cold and you realize, Oh shit, I'm getting frostbite and I got to climb down this tree and hoof through like, you know, shin deep snow for, 15 or 20 minutes to get to my truck. What are different? What are the differences between frostbite and hypothermia? 
So hypothermia, not being an MD, but hypothermia is just basically when your when your core temperature gets so low that it begins to shut down, and that's can obviously lead to death. Um, hype, uh, frostbite, on the other hand, is when your skin is getting basically frozen, burned from intense, intense cold to the point that the cells, the tissue dies. So hypothermia, I would say, is more of an internal uh, byproduct of cold, like your core temperature is, is, is affected. Frostbite is where your core temperature is intact, right? Like right. you're still in that realm of wellness, dying. but your skin's getting just cooked, Ooh. essentially. And you can feel it because at least in my case, it started feeling cold then kind of numb and then like intense burning. Whoa. And you're like, Oh, that's, that cannot be good. I don't really know what this is, but I, it's definitely something, <laughs> you know? And then I, I came home and uh, I had actually gotten frostbite earlier in the season on my toes. And I remember calling my friend Brody Levin. He's a mountaineer, you know, climber. He's experienced some pretty intense frostbite and I'll never forget. I'm sitting in front of my little stove. It's like, Hey Brody, I think I got frostbite. He's like, do your toes look like wood? Do they feel like wood? And I was like, no. And he's like, okay, good. And I was like, thank God. My toes don't feel like wood. Holy shit. What happens then? <laughs> but you know, the, the sensation came back, but like when you're, when you get frostbite, you're more predisposed right. to it. So I was very careful. So did you, I would imagine that you've learned a lot about wildlife populations since moving to Montana. Totally. I mean, I think, you know, gosh, when we, our first podcast was what, Hey, four years ago. Four years ago. Dude, you were way back in the day. Episode yeah. 15, OG of the show. Yeah, it was amazing. We were talking about that this morning um, when you when you showed up. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. So back then, I was just finishing – Was had probably just finished 2015. Yeah, 2015, I finished graduate school at Berkeley studying ecology. So I've always been really interested in wildlife and ecosystems um, fast forward to living in Montana, I think the really formative experience for me is owning land, owning property that does sustain like a huge herd of elk. They pass through here in the winter and late fall and deer and other things. So it's like you're now, you're now what you've read about. You're now living with wildlife. You're living amongst while we don't have grizzly bears here grizzly bears are i mean we can see the tree line where there are grizzly bears we can see the step just behind my fence where they've seen wolves there was a a neighbor's had a a mountain lion kill a deer in that draw right there so you're like now amongst it and i think being home especially with the cold covid situation we're just home every day and you're acutely aware of these rhythms and patterns. And I think it has taught me something really potent, which has been that it's really easy to, to read about wildlife, to read about ecosystems and to come up with hypotheses or understandings based on that kind of removed observation, right? We're like, we're learning through the eyes of somebody else's data essentially. Right. Um, and that's super valuable, right? Like wealth is power. Wealth is knowledge. That's, that's a, an integral part, I think of understanding. 
Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. You said wealth is power. Oh, whoops. Wealth is definitely power. (laughs) Wealth is power. Yeah, you look at at, that was a that was a very deep truth right there. Yeah, look at the the gutting of the middle class and the ruling elite. Wealth is definitely power. Yeah, but so is knowledge. (laughs) And knowledge is hopefully free. Yeah. Um, So you know, having spent so much time learning and thinking about ecosystems, it's really been i think uh formative to now live in those places to live amongst grizzly bears where it's not just this hypothetical or this thing that you've read about in the news or to live amongst these herds of elk are you seeing grizzlies all the time no we're not i mean grizzlies are definitely around and if you look at there's a really great interagency website that has a lot of collar data where it shows not only where mortalities have taken place say a bear being hit by a car um a bear having to be removed for breaking into people's houses repeatedly but there's also collar data on just range expansion whoop there's our puppy canute um so if you if you look i just farted (laughs) (laughs) that was not our dog (laughs) the barking spiders (laughs) so if you look at that data and you just you know are familiar with the montana fish and uh wildlife and parks emails you, you just you know the ranges are expanding there are places, I mean, we live, the greater Yellowstone is what we're looking at to our left. Um, it's one of the ecosystems that supports the greatest densities of grizzly bears in the lower 48. Really? Yep. Wow. So there are a lot of grizzly bears, like relatively speaking, right? Obviously, a thousand years ago, it was a different story. Um, there were way more. Um, but for somebody who lives in the lower 48, Montana is a very unique situation in that we do have grizzly bears. We have huge herds of elk. Um, we have wolves, we have mountain lions, we have a lot of the megafauna that would have been here and, uh, historically. And so when you live amongst them, it's really interesting because for example, you'll read about say, uh, a rancher who, um, maybe has to put up fencing around their hay to keep the elk away. Or you hear about ranchers who will haze elk because they break their fences. Was hazing? Oh, I mean, you might. You might use a flag. Hmm. You might get an ATV and try to scare them off. Um, you might use hunting, legal hunting, as a as a presence to keep to deter the animals. So a lot of a lot of people, a lot of some farmers here in the state, we have um, what's called block management, where if you're a farmer, you for for whatever reason you can allow hunters to come onto your place, and the state will pay you a small fee per hunter that visits your place. And a lot of hunters, a lot of sorry, uh, farmers and landowners will use this this opportunity with hunters to help keep, you know, elk yeah. out of their alfalfa fields or whatever. And just by having there be a presence of hunters in the area, it will change the animal behavior. Exactly. They don't need to kill all the animals, but they will very quickly start changing their behavior. Yeah. I mean, even, to, even if you go hunt deer for like three days in a certain area, they'll start changing their behavior just in those few days. Totally. Yeah. You don't even need to kill anything. You yeah. Just, just, just show up there. and yeah, just people show up there with your coffee BO <laughs> and they'll be like, I want nothing to do with this. It smells like ass. So, you know, and like with that in mind, I mean, it's crazy owning fences and thinking like, Oh gosh, are these fences good or bad for wildlife? I mean, last, I guess it was this February we had a few hundred elk just hammering my trees I planted. And at first you're like, this is amazing. There's elk on our property. And then you're watching them just snapping your $100, yeah. $200 tree. And, it, you know, it brings up a real 
Real issue. Real issue. Okay. Um, so I, I guess what I'm getting at is that living amongst wildlife in this capacity has been really interesting because now you not only feel like the decisions you make on your land affect them for good or bad, but you can start to think about the way that you steward your land long-term and how that could affect populations long-term. Yeah. So maybe it's converting this field that we have of pasture grass, which is invasive to native perennials or restoring it to a, you know, a mixed sage, you know, flower forb community. Um, it's just crazy. It's like you have a clean slate. It's like, what do you want to do? Because if you do a, then B will happen. If you do C, then D will happen. Right. Um, and it's really, it really makes ecology, as a field of study feels so intimate because it's now like balls in your court, right? Like this is your chance. Yeah. I was, uh, talking to a guy named Kevin Grunewald, who's a wildlife biologist. He works for the nature conservancy. And a lot of the work that he does is, um, with ranchers trying to put up more wildlife friendly fences. Right. And he'll do big, uh, volunteer days. It's something that I want to do while I'm out in, uh, either Colorado, Wyoming, Montana. It sounds like a really cool, cool day. Have you, uh, participated in that kind of thing? I have, yeah. And I've thought about, um, you know, we have some some sheep fence in one of our fence lines. And I've seen, I mean, last spring we had um, we had some white-tailed does that gave birth to, in particular, the dropped fawns, like right in our fence. And I, for the first three weeks, I watched the fawns just like bumping their heads into the sheep fence. You know, and it's, it's really, it's really, transformative to realize like, Hey, I could just take away that shitty fencing and make a wildlife friendly fence. What does a wildlife friendly fence look like? So typically it's removing, uh, either making one of the strands, um, movable. There's actually, well, there's many ways, there's many iterations of wildlife friendly fencing. One that I just came across recently is you can take the top strand and it basically, instead of being, um, stapled to the fence post, it has a little like slider where you can just like bring the, the, the strand lower. So it's not as high of a fence, which oftentimes will get caught up in say like a pronghorn's hoof or a deer's hoof. They'll get wrapped up. Um, you can also take away the bottom strand. So pronghorn can go underneath. Got it. You can do three strands. There's just not as many. You can remove sheep fencing, which is like a checkerboard of fencing and put smooth wire. I mean, people have fences that they'll, they'll lay down flat during certain seasons, like migration season. And then they'll, they'll you know, re-erect them during, say, calving season when you really want the fencing back up okay. in that pasture. Oh, so it's interesting. All, it varies over, like, yeah. what species are you trying to benefit? What livestock are you trying to keep in? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, to your point earlier about just coming out here and being able to see it in real life, not just in the books that you read about. And also to your point about COVID, I think that that's done... A similar thing for lots of people. Apparently, um, the act of birding has gone through the roof with COVID. Yep. Because everyone's like, whoa, what's that bird in my backyard? I want to get some binoculars and learn about it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you really um, – you said something to me, I think like four years ago on our podcast um, that always stuck with me. is like wherever you live, look up. Right. Look up and see what kind of animals are there. Like you, you're hanging out in San Francisco and it's a corridor for, what was it? Like uh red tail hawks or uh, countless species, countless I mean, species yeah, the Pacific that, are, flyway. that are just amazing that, you know, you, you could see them uh, in downtown San Francisco. So it's, uh, you just got to pay attention. Yeah. I mean, I remember being a kid and seeing 
a bald eagle. It's on my way to school. Seen a bald eagle flying over the Golden Gate Bridge, you know. And there's so I, I and we like we we're talking about this earlier, right? Like you, it's it's so different to know something exists. Like many people know birds migrate. Many people know that avalanches can happen or that or that rip currents exist. But to have the eyes to see it, to be literate in that language takes practice. You know, Malcolm Gladwell would argue 10,000 hours. And that is so true, but you don't need 10,000 hours to be the expert. Like that's, to me, that's not the goal. Put one hour, two hour in, and you start to then realize, oh, that world's there. I just have to practice looking and listening and like, like tuning into it you know it's been really strange for me on this trip so far is trying to learn how to fly fish yeah something i've never done before uh love spearfishing in california but have probably dropped a rod in the water like under 10 times in my life before this and uh i realized okay hunting season's not going to start up until september and i'm amongst some of the best rivers in the world for fly fishing oh, that seems kind of cool and to be at a state where I'm totally new to it, but have, um, how do I put this? Like I have more knowledge of the learning process than I ever have before. When I was younger, like learning how to skateboard or surf, it was just like, sweet, let's do this. Let's do it a bunch. Let's fall down, break our arms, get back up. Whereas now I feel much more tactical about my approach with something. Um, both in, as you said, like how many hours do I want to put in? So like for me, the thing that I've been trying to do is uh, is just go consistently for short periods of time because I've always found that like if you can just put in even like 10 or 20 minutes a day, that's better than trying to put in like four hours once a month. Right. Like I've always, the, the thing I've always laughed about is that like for I've lived in the same house – in California for like a decade and I would always mail rent to my landlord once a month and I could never remember his address because it was just once a month but I would write his address once a month and then I would have to relearn it once a month and I was like dude if I just wrote this down 20 times right now I would have it in my memory forever but that's just an example of how I think that if you approach a new activity in little short bursts consistently you can get better than just like going all out um, what's, what's the line? Mental toughness is persistence, not intensity. Mm. And I think that that's a real thing. Cause like, it's so easy to just go at something really hard and then burn out. And I'm, it's, so, it, and I'm noticing also, um, with fly fishing, how helpful it is to have someone who actually knows what they're doing. Take right. me. Like I, I went out a few times fly fishing on my own. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And I don't even know that I'm getting any better at this. (laughs) Like I'm just throwing it in and throwing it in again. I'm not catching any fish. All I'm doing is getting more frustrated and not, not falling in love with this. So that's another thing that I'm, that I'm like keenly aware of that I never was before in any discipline is how important maintaining a love for something is when you're getting into it. Because if you love something, like you're going to go for it forever, right? They say it like takes seven years to learn a new language and three if you're in love. Like I, I'm a big believer in that. So I'm noticing even with fly fishing, like, oh, do you know what's really cool about this? Even if I don't catch a fish is I'm becoming more literate in the language of water. Right. Like we can go down to a beach break. I can tell you where the sandbars are, where the, the current is, where you're, where you are 
most likely to catch the best wave. And that's a huge part of surfing. It's not actually surfing the wave. It's knowledge of the ocean, being able to read that language. And now going to the rivers and being like, oh, oh, I see a little eddy there. All right, like this is a spot where the fish would maybe want to hang out. And even just yesterday, I went down fly fishing and there were some kayakers coming down. And right after a rock, they spun around and kind of hung out in the eddy themselves. And I was like, oh, just like the fish. (laughs) I didn't catch any fish, but I was like, that's sick. I just learned something new. Um, So it's all of that is to say, yeah, it's it's fun to learn a new skill as an adult. Right. um, And uh, be more tactical about it. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think your observation of the kayakers is similar to a moment I have clarity that I had as a grad student when I was thinking about, so I did my graduate work on the American Dipper, which if, if you become a keen fly fisher, you'll know the bird. Um, Cause they're hanging around rivers all the time. They have the same diet as rainbow trout. They are the ubiquitous, uh, the ubiquitous bird you would see that looks like a songbird that flies around the river, very low, has this very noticeable call. Uh, I call them a flying trout. Very, very like one and the same in terms of life, life, lifestyle uh, and, and habitat use. Um, but I remember as a graduate student, one of the people in my lab uh, was a is a scientist named Sybil Diver, and she was doing her work uh, in conjunction with some Native American tribes. And I remember I was telling her about my question that I was exploring, which was, you know, do American dippers have a stone that is their favorite fishing perch? Because if you look, what I'd found is if you look at a stream, say 100 yards or 100 meters of a stream, you can see their poop on all the stones. There's always one or two stones that is like their key stone. And she told me, well, she's like, it would make sense. If you think about these First Nations Native American fishers, there were always those fishing perches, those stones where they would dip net for salmon that were passed down generation after generation and held in the families. So she was like, you know, it would make sense that there are these stones that through generations of dippers generations of people through generations of time they have been persistent consistently these very um rich fishing stones wow so they've been they've been passed down from generation both with humans and dippers yeah and who's to say whether they've been they've been you know quote unquote passed down but there are those those aspects that make that stone extraordinary and exceptional so that really struck, stuck with me where it's like you have these um, these things in nature or these these things in a family or these things in your you know your home that are just that are infinitely more valuable than everything else but you only know that because you know enough. Right. Right? Like if you walk into somebody's garden for the first time you won't know where the gardener likes to sit at noon. But when you spend time in your garden you could say like I always sit there because I love that spot in the shade or I love the way the wind blows through the forest right there. And I think that intimacy, that, that depth is something that I would imagine is being cultivated by a lot of people with COVID, right? Like maybe they're looking in their backyard for the first time with new eyes, or maybe they're looking out their window or maybe they're that little pond that was kind of nothing special is now like that oasis that's given them reprieve and an escape during this time. Yeah. Yeah. To see the, to see the world through a thousand different eyes, right? Like to see a single object through a thousand different eyes, right? That's there's a real um, kind of Zen art in that, right? Yeah, and I think that it's that travel is amazing. Going and seeing different places is uh, 
is you know one of life's great privileges, right? If you can go travel and check out new areas, meet new people, but also just to, you know, there's something very Zen about approaching a person that you've met a hundred times before and seeing them through new eyes or looking at your backyard with more vividness. I used to have actually a little like mental exercise that I would do. I would run down. You've been to my house in Santa Cruz. We'd run down. We did this. Yeah. The first down podcast. And, yep. And, and, do a cold plunge in the ocean, and on the way back, you're freezing your ass off. And uh, it's a street I've ran down freaking 10 million times, but I would always try and notice something new. Hmm. Whether it's like a car or a house, it's crazy, man. You can live in the same neighborhood for your whole life and not notice a house exists. It's such a, it's a strange thing that happens to your brain, actually. Um, there's a great book on this called The Power of Habit, hmm. where um, he talks about how when you do a repetitive task, um, a part of your brain called the basal ganglia uh, activates, which allows other parts of your brain um, to to deactivate, right? So like if you wake up in the morning, you put your left shoe on before your right shoe, you're not thinking about that. Or like if you ever dr driven to work and have no recollection of how you got there because you've done it so many times, it's because this part of your brain is firing up that um, – creates habits, right? And that's really powerful. And that's actually why, you know, you, you may have felt really exhausted if you were working at an office job and then it, it COVID hit and you had to work from home because you had to reestablish all these new habits. Um, but so, so that's really powerful, right? Habit forming, it allows us to save energy in the brain, but it also makes us tune out. Right. Right. Kind so of like takes up hard drive space. It takes up hard drive space. Yeah. So right. sometimes actively engaging in a task that you've done 10,000 times before, but trying to notice more is, uh, I, I think it's a way, if nothing else, to just enjoy life more because the more you notice of life, the more you're going to enjoy it. Well, and it's funny because I was living, before I met Rachel, I was living in Northern California where I was born and raised. Everything was familiar. I knew where to get you know, a cup of coffee. I knew where, knew where to go for lunch. I knew all the spots to surf, all my homies, like we had the same program we always had since we were kids, more or less. And then moving to Montana, one of the things that Rachel and I have talked about a lot is we'll go to town and I go my way, but it's not the way she would go because she's always gone a certain way. Right. So I've talked to her quite a bit about like the exhaustive byproduct of being, you know, a 30 year old person who's uprooted left the ocean, left his world and is now making a new life in a totally foreign place. No, no, you know, no pre-existing friends, really no patterns. Everything is new. Every season, every trip to town, I'm still using my phone to figure out how to get places, Yeah, you know, and people assume, Oh, I'll meet you at, on this Ridge or up this chairlift. Dude, and the amount like, of names that have been said to me since Bozeman, like, are you going to go to the crazy mountain range or up in the bridger? Then there's the blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, dude, that, none of that, none of that made it in, man. Like I just heard words, right? And I, I appreciate it, but I need to write all this down. And, you know, and I think as like a, as a bit of a, perhaps, I wouldn't say a defense mechanism, but just as a as a initial foray into a life here. While there is so much to do, I mean, we look 360. We're surrounded by mountain ranges that are all accessible um, in one way or another. I have consciously and really enjoyed really diving deep into this part of the valley, hunting, you know, on the neighbor's farm, you know, hunting in some of the forest that's like very close. 
really focusing on like our land, like trying to like build the ground floor before I start just spreading myself thin. Um, Smart. And there's, there's so much to be said. You could spend your entire life and just get to know the Bridger range. Yeah. You know? So it's been a really good, I think, challenging, but also very uh, rewarding exercise to, to uproot, to put yourself in a new space. And, you know, I grew up fly fishing, but to have a world-class river down the road from my house and to think like, okay, how do I take advantage of that? You know, or I miss the ocean. One of the things, thanks to you actually, is, you know, right now we have our irrigation ditches running and I don't really have a body of water I can swim in. Uh, I used to surf every day. So now I get on my board shorts that you gave me, you know, four years ago. And every day, at least once, I'll like walk down to the irrigation ditch and go swimming. Oh, that makes me feel so good. You know, and I have a little cattle trough here behind this bush that I, uh, you know, I'll sit in as well. But just thinking about those ways to create meaning, I think, gives a lot of perspective because not only does it does it teach you of your strengths, but also teaches you what things scare you and what you, what things that you need. What are the things that you need? Yeah. You know, I think during COVID I realized how much I missed the ocean. I thought it wasn't something I really needed. Um, and that little scratch of the itch has been the ditch. Um, I've always loved gardening, but I've never been able to garden because I've been on the road 250 days a year. Now I have a garden and it's amazing. So it's like gardening is the best, you know, it's like, will I ever go back to traveling? Like I used to, I hope not. Yeah. You know, well, it's, uh, um, there's this constant balance that I've found needs to be maintained between chaos and order. Yep. And no one knows, everyone knows what that balance is for themselves, but no one else does. However, our culture is very oriented towards uh, rewarding chaos. Like, whoa, Charles, you're traveling 10 months out of the year and you're flying a new spot every week and you're, you know, hanging out with all these new interesting people. And, you know, like we really celebrate that with social media. But internally, dude, it's exhausting. And I think that people who have really been able to maintain while living a big life, um, they create a lot of order or as much as possible within chaos. Like you look at someone like Joe Rogan or something like that. I'm like, dude, how are you, how are you so huge and not insane? Because most people just go insane when they get that famous. Right. And I, I really think that his key is the amount of order that he maintains in his life, like works out every morning, has a routine, goes to the podcast spot, goes to the comedy store. Go, like, so he's re- reaching this huge audience, but it's within this, certain set of decisions that he's making every day it's not an infinite amount of decisions and i've even on this trip dude sleeping in in jody forrester my subaru uh she's great she's great we love each other um but it's a lot of it's a lot of chaos man i mean like i was in jackson hole you know you're like finding a new spot to sleep every night like finding a new coffee shop to work at and i was like dude why am i so exhausted and one thing I started doing is like enacting a few of those routines into my morning and found how much more energy it gave me, like just a little bit of meditation or like a 15 minute workout, something I would do at home. And it was, uh, it was a profound shift in the energy I found throughout the day. It's yeah, it's, it's amazing not feeling totally spent. Yeah. Rachel talks about all the days that she'd heckle me to go backpacking and how I was always so reluctant. 
And then she'd say, yeah, because you, you were home for 24 hours at a time. And, you know, I'd want to go and do some big adventure when you had 36 hours before your turnaround to Quebec to give a talk, you know? And it's like in those moments, there's the part of you that realizes you're doing this to keep the lights on. Like this isn't, yes, the travel's enjoyable, but it's, it's work. It's like the job is taking you where they take you. And you say yes, because you're trying to build a career and try to save up for whatever and, you know, have a life. Um, but now through this whole COVID quarantine self-isolation thing has unfolded, it's like, maybe you're better off with $10,000 less in your pocket and $10,000 worth of time at your disposal. You know, maybe it's worth, you know, giving yourself the time to, to have the garden, which has immense immeasurable benefit and value to your life. Um, so it's been this really interesting, like kind of hard reset. You know, I think that travel and those experiences helped build the career that I have by just giving me an opportunity to explore and, and develop and cultivate and create relationships. But the amount of joy that I've had just being home and having our puppy and enjoying being with the person that I love and enjoying being in a house that I truly knowing the bathroom that you take a shit in every morning. Totally. (laughs) You know? And like, for me, it's sleep. Like I always was a horrible sleeper. Yeah. And it was always because I was, you know, hotels and couches and Airbnbs and cars. It wrecks you. It wrecks you. you. Dude, uh, driving tired is as, as dangerous as driving drunk. And I've pulled over a lot of times and slept. Yeah. You know? And, um, I think that time, right? Time is our most limited resource. Most finite resource we have is time. And yet we're so, we're so many of us are so okay with giving it away to to somebody who just drains it from you. And maybe it's because you just need to set more boundaries for yourself. Or maybe it's for those emails that just keep filling your freaking inbox. And it's just, you know, it's just noise, but you answer it because you feel like you're supposed to. Yeah. Or maybe it's a job that you took because you think being a productive, fulfilled person correlates with being a busy person. Yeah. And being busy, and I, we're realizing this now more than ever, is not a corollary of being necessarily fulfilled. Or, or, even, doing, pro- or even productive. Or productive right? or doing good work. I had a conversation with my personal hero, Chris Tompkins, the other day. Uh, Who Mace, is he? Chris Tompkins, um, she and Doug Tompkins started, right, oh, you know, right, right. North yeah, face, North face. Uh, Chris is probably one of the most celebrated conservationists alive. Yeah. She's, she's conserved so much land down in Chile and along Patagonia. Exactly. Yeah. And Badass. she's just a, an absolute luminary and a light, uh, in our world. And I had a co- conversation with her on, on May 6th. And I know this cause I wrote down the quotes and taped it to my computer and we were talking a lot about impact and we were talking about, um, you know, as she said, wake up and join the fray, uh, to create change and to have impact is not something that happens overnight. It takes time. So I think about myself and, and I'm sure you're the same way, right? Like we have aspirations. We have things that we know we want to contribute to the world. We have things that we know we want to do for ourselves and our family. We want to have these experiences. These take time. These are not things that are a result of an Instagram post or an email or 10 emails or whatever bullshit hoop you think you have to jump through, you know, and for Chris, like she's put a lifetime of work into these national parks 
and she's accomplished so much. So I, you know, while our economy, this attention economy, where capital, whatever that means, is 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 tied to to likes or engagement or busy or whatever the fucking metric is, I've been trying to think about and and really the 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 quarantine time has really facilitated this is like what do I want to accomplish in my life? And how much time do I waste on my phone? How much time do I waste on email? How can I create the time and the energy to go accomplish those things? And really it boils down to like I need to sleep well. Yeah. Because when I'm rested, I'm way more effective at reaching and working on the goals that I want to work on and strive towards. And I want to eat well. And knowing that I can eat food that makes me feel good is huge. And when I'm around my wife and people like yourself, I mean, so many times you might have been in Bozeman and I was on the road. But I I will think about this day six months from now. I'm like, thank God I was home. It was so fun. You know, and that is all a function of prioritizing. Yeah, it's a function of saying no. Saying no. And getting really good at saying no. Uh, I, I think that that should be a class in school. Absolutely. Like the two classes that I believe should be requirements in high school are um, learning to say no and cognitive bias. And skinning a deer. And skinning a deer. <laughs> Fucking skinning a deer. Yeah. I wanna, God. In auto class. Like, right? All right, boys. Today, <laughs> skin and whitetail. Yeah, and how to make a awesome. planter box. Totally. You know? Yeah. Dude, learning how to garden would be a great skill for people to learn. I learned how to garden through COVID. My mom's got a green thumb and uh, our backyard smells like shit now because we've got manure everywhere. Right? But yeah, I, I think that um, in my life, I've had a few um, relationships that have had exponential benefit for me. And these are relationships with people who have just taught me so much and nourished my life just immensely. And if I wouldn't have put that emphasis on those relationships, if I would have just focused on the hundreds and hundreds of people who I meet, um, my life wouldn't be nearly as good. It wouldn't be nearly as good. And like, and I've thought about that through COVID. Like, who are the five people that I texted first when we knew that shit was hitting the fan? Like, oh, I want to put more time into those relationships because no one knows how long it's going to be, how long you have until it's all over. You know, that's at the end of the day, man, as you said, like time just continues to speed up and getting really good at prioritizing what it is you want to do, getting good at saying no to the the things and the people that you don't want in your life um, and being really all kind of militant about it is the difference between you achieving your dreams and not. And it's like you said with Joe Rogan, it's all about creating those boundaries yeah. while he is, you might think spread thin and obviously we're just speculating. You would, you would imagine that there are these boundaries that make that perceived chaos feel very comfortable, very predictable, very much a routine. And you know, an illustrative moment for that awareness, I would say, comes from being married recently, two years ago, and COVID. When you're getting married, this is my experience, I'm sure other people can relate, you have all these people, your freaking, your parents, your other relatives, your close friends telling you 
who should be there and what their role should be and where, you know, whatever. There's all these expectations that everybody experiences in some way or another for weddings. You know, and you have obviously your best friends there, the people that you just can't live without. And then there's the people that are like your B level. And then maybe you have a few like, you know, this is like your cousins, whoever. And you're like, ah, shit. Well, I don't really know this person. But like, Mom really wants them there. And like, fuck, I guess we'll have them there. You know, so whatever. So that's like you like look out on your wedding day and you're like, oh, look at all these fucking people. And then COVID happens and you think about who you texted. Were yeah. they at your wedding? Hopefully. Were they not? They freaking should have been there. Yeah. And I have some friends who I like texted when COVID started and I was like, damn, like, I love this person. And like, it is so just gin clear that that this person, the person who you've probably ridden COVID out with, you know, through text, FaceTime, whatever, is like your homie. Yeah. And it's been really cool to pin down some of those people that like in the back of your head, you knew how much they matter to you. Yeah. But, like, one friend who I'd love to just call out because he's just an amazing human is Vincent Colliard. He's a polar explorer. He's a Frenchman. One of my favorite people. We have we were on Mountain Hardware together. We're both Nerona ambassadors. But he and I, you know, he's in Norway right now. We face him all the time. And it's like, in those moments, you're like, you're, I'm so grateful for that person. Yeah. Um, and you think about... Your, you know, your followers, they feel like you follow and all the freaking whatever, <laughs> the noise. And it's They'll like, be at your funeral for sure. You know, it's, it's, uh, so it's been a really, yeah, obviously it's a, it's a very, very rough time for a lot of people, but I think some of the silver linings are like maybe the time yeah to be clear and the time to like see these things that maybe you missed with, with, Dude, with new eyes. My dad says it's the best time of his life. He he went down to the junkyard and bought like 150 huge tires that he's now making into planter boxes for the entire neighborhood. That's awesome. It's like, dude, he loves it. Every time I talk to him, he's like, I'm driving. I'm driving. <laughs> How you doing? Yep, just, just this whole thing's just taking some time for me to slow down. I'm just focusing on what I really want to do now. I'm like, hell yeah, dad. Do it. Because... Life's short and culture's insane. And if you believe what others, what culture tells you to behave like, you will be a fucking neurotic, egomaniac, materialist, nerfed, horrible human. Like, and you got to find that path of whatever is important to you, and and just do it, man. I'm, I'm. It's obviously oversimplified terms and stuff, but I don't know. I'm I'm very lucky in that I get to sit down with a lot of smart people on this podcast and people that have really made that stuff happen for them, for themselves. And I think that a huge amount of it comes down to these little habits that they've formed in their day-to-day, in their mornings, really, and how much that then sweeps into profundity. Like, you can have that profound moment on top of a mountain or maybe you take some mushrooms or whatever like that, but if you don't, if you don't have tactical responses as you're talking about like sleeping well yep. like eating good food uh, then it's nothing else is really going to happen yeah and i think creating creating the time and the space to to also know that there's so much out there that you don't yet know about so to be curious right like you think about the idea of boredom and when you were a little kid, like when I was little, I was never, I don't even think I knew the word bored. Like I was in a tree or in the marsh at my grandparents' house or whatever, like just doing stuff. And I just yesterday I was telling my wife, Rachel, like how 
fun it has been to have so many things to do. And I think some of that has just been for me, like in my sauna reading, uh, shelter pubs, you know, all these houses on DIY building. And, you know, Lloyd Kahn was an old neighbor of mine in Bolinas. Oh, no way. Yeah. I'm going to get him on the podcast. He's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. My buddy Chris Ryan just had him on his show and he says that Lloyd's awesome. Lloyd and Evan, his son, are they're just amazing people. We live, um, gosh, maybe like four houses away from them. Uh, but I have their every book that they've published in my son and I've read every book, every word. And it's been so fun to sit there because these books talk about, you know, the half acre homestead, uh, tiny homes on wheels. There are these, there, there are these archives of of inspiration. So Lloyd Kahn developed the tiny home. He was the he, he really. My understanding is that he really um, made a name for himself, really uh, exploring geodesic domes in the sixties initially through the whole Earth catalog. Right, and then with after, Buckminster Fuller, exactly. Right. and then after some time, he decided that domes weren't all what they were all cracked up to be and moved more into the whole like DIY, um, you know, tiny intentional reclaimed refurbished home movement, which has all kind of come to life through shelter, shelter. Um, yeah. Shelter pub books. Okay. Um, based out of their place in Bolinas, but yeah, Lloyd Kahn's the author, obviously. Um, but you know, you read through these books and it's like story after story after story of, of the person who's like, yeah, you know, I just wanted to like make my first house and I wanted to like, leave the city and buy a piece of land, um, you know, in BC and just figure out how to mill wood in Alaskan mill and figure out how to, uh, you know, make a greenhouse and grow stuff and do masonry. And when COVID was like really starting to take more and more of the mental capacity that I had available, I would spend my evenings in the sauna, just like reading those books. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you can, it's, this is a reminder, like so many reminders that, life is what you make of it. And if you want to learn how to build something or learn how to like create this universe, you Dude, can. The, the tiny home movement is blowing up. I yeah. think that I've already just seen it anecdotally, but I'm sure there are stats around how many people are going to, are starting to build these tiny homes. How many people are trying to get out of cities and into places with more space, more resources. Like right. as you were saying earlier, you know, it's, when when COVID hit, like it, it's almost like in the way that when you moved to Montana, all of a sudden being amongst the wildlife became so much more real and vivid. When COVID hit, all of a sudden sustainability didn't become was no longer an ab- abstraction. Right. Right. You're like shit. How do I, how do I build a garden in case you know a port blows up and we can't get food back in here? And I think that that's a, a lot of people are thinking about that and thinking about this new kind of life that they want to live because the current system is is just crumbling and not working for them anymore. And food. I mean, it's so you know being this, and I've written up, written about and talked about this before, but I like straddle these two worlds of like being the hippie surfer. Berkeley trained, whatever left-leaning person who's also like a very, very passionate hunter who hunt. I mean, I hunt almost daily for like an hour or a day or multiple days from August until February. I'm like out hunting most days, at least for a little bit, whether it's at our place or our neighbor's place or in the public lands around us, you know, and last year I harvested one animal. I saw a ton of animals but I harvested one because I still had some elk from the year before and for just the family, for two of us, you know, that's all we needed. So not only is the experience amazing, I was creating that time and that space to do what I love and to 
unplug and check into the natural environment. But when COVID hit, it's like, oh my gosh, I have a freezer literally overflowing with salmon, mule deer, whitetail deer, That's and elk. so sick. You know? God, and it's like, love it. regardless of, of what you choose to eat, like I don't care if you're a vegan or if you just eat meat, even though most people eat meat, eat like grains and other things too, like including plants. But like whatever it is that like floats your boat, like food is rad. And like having a garden, I mean, I have four planter boxes that have like onions and kale and some other things. But like, if you really think about how much kale you can grow in four planter boxes, you can freeze that stuff and you can have a lot of kale. Or you kill one deer. That's a lot of meat. Yeah. Regardless of how you feel about whatever, like you're wearing a cotton shirt. Cotton kills a lot of animals. You know, go harvest a deer, do it ethically, do it in a way that feels good to you. And you're not. How does cotton kill animals? Oh, I mean, cotton's one of the most intensive agricultural practices that exists. And to grow cotton, you're by nature denuding a wild landscape, converting it to an agricultural system, and then growing cotton on it. So, you know, any cotton shirt, virgin cotton at least, yeah, came from a place that used to be a wild ecosystem at some point. So what recipes have you been uh, exploring with with wild game? I've, you know, I, I'm still relatively new to hunting a few years into it and i i really love the experience of going out and becoming more literate in these landscapes and um having that connection to my food i also love love learning how to become a better cook dude i have this traeger apron that they sent me a thing <laughs> makes me feel like fucking grizzly adams dude <laughs> throw some santa cruz turkey into into the traeger and or like uh dude i've been doing um what i've been doing uh in a um, crock pot. You oh, yeah. Put wild crock- me into a crock pot. Oh, yeah. Oh, half a beer in there. And I like realized, I'm like, whoa, I'm a cook and I didn't used to be. And this is such a fun aspect of this new sport that I'm interested in. Totally. And sharing it. I mean, for our wedding, we served our entire wedding party with an elk that I harvested. My first elk with a bow. Um, and it was just, it was so amazing to hand a plate of elk over to like my mom who's never hunted in her life but to just know that like me working my ass off in the mountains all season paid off for me to like give my mom this like really important meal Mm. like felt so good and you know and cooking it like you're putting so much love and energy into the preparation of this thing yeah it's kind of like gardening i mean most nights i'm up until you know the sun goes down pretty late up here at this time of the year but, you know, like most evenings, I'm up at like 1130 midnight watering my garden. You know, all these trees and all of our flowers. We have a huge like native perennial garden, vegetable garden. And it's like that care, right? Like you talked about you would have remembered your landlord's name if you'd written it down 40 times. <laughs> if you've ever grown a tree, like a burlap, a ball and burlap tree, you know that you can't just water that entire tree's week's worth of water in one day. It's like five gallons a day. So, like, to tend to a tree is to tend to those activities that really become something, right? Like, that is whether it's the cooking or it's the growing of the kale. Like, people say, like, oh, you know, what is it, what's the relation between, like, hunting a deer and eating a strawberry from your garden? They both take a lot of time. Like, if you pick the right deer, that's, like, days and days and days. And not only you practicing with your bow, but, like, going out there and, like, picking the deer. And, like, figuring out the shot and the wind and the yardage and everything. Growing – 
I mean, for anybody listening who's grown strawberries, like enough to like share, because everybody's grown like three. <laughs> yeah. But like, if you filled a bowl of your own strawberries and given that <laughs> yeah. to your neighbor, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know about the nights with the headlamp picking slugs off your strawberries. Like that shit is hard. Yeah. You have two people come over to your barbecue. One's got a big rack of elk. The other's got a bowl of strawberries. He's got strawberries. You're like, you're a badass. Like I would argue like one in the same. More, like more hardcore. Yeah, like sweat, <laughs> blood and tears. He's, he's just got strawberry juice across his forehead instead of blood. I mean, like that is such an unsung accomplishment. Yeah. To have your own DIY organic strawberry batch that's just thriving to the point where you can share. Yeah. And whatever it is, like the preparation, the cooking. You know, that, like, the giving, like, all those, those kind of, like, the garnishes. Yeah. Right? Those moments that, like, garnish the experience. Yeah, there's a kind of sacredness in yeah. sharing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the line in Into the Wild when Christopher McCandless is in Alaska and he writes in his journal, beauty is only real when shared. Right. I think about that a lot. And they just took his bus out of the woods, like, I know, three weeks ago. I know. I follow Crack Hour Not Writing on yeah. Instagram. God, that guy's a badass. Rachel climbed Denali with Crack Hour. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. sweet. Um, but, yeah, and it's... So, the, the cooking thing, I, I've, I'm not a great cook. Yeah. Crockpot's a great way to go. Traeger's a dummy-proof way to cook meat that's not overcooked. Um... You know, we've been actually when this whole thing started, we had just signed up for a CSA with a local farm. So that's been another really great way to like connect to like honor kind of the aspects of society that social media is certainly not like raving about at this moment in time, like organic farmers. But it's been really fun to like create the time and create the space to build those relationships, whether it's with the farmer, you know, that we get our CSA from or with the farmers. I mean, we actually give our grass to our neighbor who's a big farmer and then he lets me hunt on his place as trade. Um, So it's been really interesting, like just thinking about like community sharing those metrics of like perceived wealth that aren't followers likes or money in your bank account yeah i i um i did a podcast with this um psychologist and researcher named dacker keltner he's uh he actually researches at berkeley but he does a lot of work on um social relationships he did this real famous study on um on whether or not people in more expensive cars will stop at stop signs for pedestrians. I read this. Yeah. So that's yeah. Dr. Keltner's work. Um, and he, he wrote a book called, um, what is it? Oh gosh. The compassion instinct. Ugh, I'm sorry guys, but it's it, Dr. Keltner. He does a lot of work basically arguing that, you know, Darwin talked about love and cooperation three times as much as he talked about survival of the fittest. And a lot of that research, a lot of his research was co-opted for this kind of me, me, me um, narrative. But he argues, you know, kindness and cooperation is what allowed our species to get here. The idea of sharing that we need each other is um, what allowed humans to thrive over you know, bigger, stronger animals that were not quite as social. Um, and, you know, there's like, there's studies done on um, primates where you put like a chimp next to uh, a, an infant and like spatial reasoning, they're no better than chimps, you know, like round peg in square hole. Um, 
there was another kind of reasoning I forget, but the social reasoning, human infants were like off the charts better than chimpanzees. So it is our ability to communicate with each other and cooperate that largely has allowed us to get to this point in in human history. You know, um, even in the book Sapiens, um, Yuval Noah Harari talks about this concept of um, humans being able to share imagined realities. So like beyond the Dunbar's number, beyond the group of 200, you can share an idea. And if it's powerful enough, it can change the entire world. Like, And there are all, all these ideas that are running the world, like the idea of a corporation. Like what is a corporation actually? Is it just the people that make up that corporation? Is it the manufacturing within it? No, what it is actually is an idea. It's an idea that enough people believe. Same with a nation, you know, same with with a lot of these things religion. that religion right it's, it's this idea and um all of that is to say that um we are really set up for cooperation even in the way that doing something nice and sharing releases oxytocin you know it makes right. you feel good right. um and just acknowledging that that is actually our predisposition um i think is a powerful message to to bring out into the world right now um in a you know for the last generation it's really been about like me 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 take care of number one and now in COVID, all of a sudden you realize well, holy shit i need those five friends that i'm talking about i need that csa those farmers you know who and we figure out the kinds of people that really make our society run right um and to acknowledge that and to write it down and to acknowledge that that's part of us deeply and innately is uh i think it's it's important, or at least fun to think about. Totally. And like on, you know, one, take it one level deeper, like beneath the societal kind of, um, crust, we need clean air. Think about all the, the content that was flying around the world when Beijing and all these cities in China had clean air and think about all the content that flew around the world that was showcasing animals returning to these, these places that had been previously you know, devoid of that species or that species in such abundance. Um, you know, we realize that we are part of nature. We need food. We need topsoil. Topsoil is one of the most limiting resources we have. And yet we all eat, but there's still that disconnect. Like I think right. COVID taught us we need food and that food doesn't just necessarily like um, just appear yeah. in the grocery store. It comes from somewhere, whether it's like a meat packing plant or a farm or requires transportation or requires you know, a border to be open so the food can travel to us. Um, so I hope that through that increased awareness that there's also that like deeper look that says like clean air is freaking awesome. Clean water is amazing. You know, <laughs> I want to make a bumper sticker that says clean air is freaking awesome. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and really then it all ties into this idea of, of, you know, altruism to a sense. Yeah. Right. And symbiosis to a sense. Like we need it. And in some cases it needs us. Yes. Right. Like we need the planet and the planet needs us to advocate on its behalf. Yeah. I, I, it's so funny too, because these are all truths that our ancestors knew 10,000 years ago. Right. Right. And, uh, like Darwin talks about how one thing that he noticed among, uh, hunter gatherers, uh, that he was really frustrated by was that whenever he would give them a cigarette, they would all insist on breaking it apart and sharing it with each other. And he was like, you, no one can smoke the cigarette now. But from their perspective, it was like, no, if we don't share, we die. Right. Right. And 
I think that we're coming back to these kinds of truths now, um, both environmentally, also economically, right? If you live in one of the most expensive places in the United States, San Francisco, you have to walk through a city of homeless people now to get around. So even the winners in society are now losing with this, you know, it's really an, an Ayn Rand mindset that we've adopted over the last generation and hopefully uh, COVID knocks some sense into us. Well, there's been studies that have looked at, I'm forgetting the researcher, um, similar in the sense that it, it kind of addresses some of the shortcomings of society, especially as adults in society, but it specifically looks at uh, young people, babies, mm. right? When you're a kid and now that we're, our, our friends are having babies, like we're peripherally attuned to this but it's like you're always watching the kid like put something in its mouth or like feel something or look at something or you know you get a puppy same thing like the first time an eagle flew over our dog he was just like what is that holy <laughs> shit that's a large thing <laughs> i'm gonna stand with your feet up. yeah you know um so there's this like this curiosity there's this 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 predisposition to just like look feel touch listen taste but as we get older we have preferences and proclivities and tendencies. And it's like, I don't like that. So I'm going to just direct my gaze this way, or I'm not into that. So I'm just going to listen to this or talk this way or appreciate these things. And hopefully through this altruistic, compassionate, symbiotic pivot that I hope that our world is making, they'll start to realize that like you can open up. It's okay to, to think differently, to see something through new eyes, to take steps in somebody else's shoes. Maybe it doesn't change your mind, but just to like taste it, like yeah. give it a listen. And there's so much to be said for that, for giving yourself the room and the time and like the, just acknowledging the, the, the potential there. To quote the great Lester Bangs from Almost Famous, the only real currency in this bankrupt world is who you are is oh shit <laughs> ah, i had it i had it i had it the only real currency in this bankrupt world is who you are no the only real currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with others when you are uncool got it i like that i like it too yeah because learning new shit is uncool because you're gonna suck at it for a little while I mean, one of my favorite, um, and for anybody who's from Bozeman who is listening to this, so there's uh, there's a place on the mountain at our local you know ski spot called Holy Gully, which is like a big gully that like comes down the face of the of the mountain, and it's mostly and it's like a perfect half pipe. It's sick. So for a surfer, I was like, oh, I'm in there all day, but it's me and like the five year olds because it's just like a very like fun, loose way to get down the mountain. Nothing really too technical, but you can just like kind of attack and get after it if you want. And I'll never forget, you know, one of my first, I don't know, times meeting some like the core skiers up on, on the mountain, you know, Rachel and them were going to go up and ski this kind of like out of bounds, um, you know, pretty like gnarly zone. And some guy I didn't know was like, you're coming with us. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to Holly Gully. And he's like, he laughed at me like in my face and was like, thought I was joking. And then I was like, all right, I like probably clipped my helmet. I was like, all right, see you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, went off down the goalie. Oh, I love doing that. You know, That's and the then best. I remember like them snickering at me. And it's like, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know, the best thing about actually being, you know, secure in yourself is that you can laugh that shit off. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. I, there's this, uh, this UFC 
fighter, brilliant guy who I'm buddies with him, Kyle Kingsbury. And uh, he's he is the most like flamboyant, effeminate, like hilarious dude that could rip your spine out of your throat at any point. But he's so comfortable with himself and his sexuality that he's willing to just like throw caution to the wind and say these like super gay things sometimes. (laughs) But it's like, oh, it's because you're really secure in yourself. Right. Right. And I, and I've found that too, like meeting people that are really good at one thing are totally cool being kooks at another because they have that stability and that groundedness. But there's actually, you know, it's people that always try and overdo it um, that you can tell have some insecurity. You'd you'd love this. Um, do you know about the concept of Batesian mimicry? I do. Have you yes. heard, heard about this? Yeah. So it's like there's the there's a a fish. This, oh gosh, it's like butterflies it. have it too, right? So, so there's a there's a fish. Oh, it's a, a sea snake that's poisonous, and it has these certain markings on it. And through adaptation, another sea snake adapted to have those markings without the poison. Right, right. It's like the king snake and the coral snake. Yeah, in California. Um, and uh, you know, there humans do this too, right? That we we will start if if I get into hunting and I'm new at this, I'm going to start dressing like a hunter first. But one way that people are going to be able to call me out, real expert hunters, is that I'm probably going to way overdo it. Like I'm going to always talk about hunting and like go to the coffee shop in full camo, right? <laughs> and like you see this around in human behavior, where like someone, if someone, if I ask someone, like, oh, hey, like. Do you do you hunt? And they're like, ah, yeah, I'm pretty into it. Like, you know, there's a lot of guys that are better than me, but like, I'm, I'm like, oh, you're a total badass, huh? <laughs> yeah. But if someone's just way overdoing it, I'm like, oh, Batesian mimicry. Yeah, like you're you are just mimicking that you have this skill without actually having put in those ten thousand hours. And it's funny living, and I'm sure you got this. You know, Santa Cruz is like one of the surf hubs of yeah. the world. Um, you get that there. I mean, I grew up surfing a bit there as well. Um, but here in Bozeman, you know, this is like kind of a, a hub, a Mecca for hunting for mountain sports and a kind of adventure. So you, you're like, you're constantly kind of observing, the, you're constantly observing those types of people where not, not to like assume, you know, but you can kind of see the, the strut. You can kind of see like the program, you yeah. know, like the, I mean, we saw some the other day who had just like the most ridiculous, it was probably like a, I don't know, a really expensive Range Rover, but it looked like it was ready to cross the Sahara and it was totally just, crystal, <laughs> yeah, you know, I was yeah. like, I'm not even sure you'd want to take, that's a really nice car. I'm not yeah. sure you'd want to like, that would be the thing to drive through the river. Dude, <laughs> dude, hunting, I feel like the hunting industry, surf industry too, probably is just built and thrives on people that love the idea of doing the thing and are there and like just giving over the credit card makes them feel like they're a the little bit further on their way to being fucking Steve Ranella, but then they like just don't go out and do it. Like how many products have been purchased and never used? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, and I think the funny thing is like working a bit in that space, if you look at the data, so many people not to say those people don't exist because they certainly do in abundance, but I think there's also a huge uh, proportion, a subset of people who would like to hunt more, but it's all about that time is is uh, is, is non-renewable finite, resource. Yeah, you know? yeah, and they don't like, they don't set that time aside. Yeah, and I and I think it's um, I think it also boils down to in some of these activities, whether it's activism 
whether it's hunting, um, whether it's fishing, whether it's watering a tree once or five times a week, six times a week, there's this idea that's like, go hard, go deep, go far. And that's going to be like the metric for whatever your core, you had a successful trip. It, you know, it was fulfilling. One of the things that I've really enjoyed, I love hunting, but I oftentimes just go in the morning and I'll just go and hunt. I'll wake up, you know, at four or five, go hunting for a few hours, I'm home by 10, take the dog on a walk, clean up the house, do some work. And for me personally, through my experience and, and the way I structure my time, like that is the most fulfilling thing ever where I can go and like, kind of like you, like jump in, grab three waves, you know, take yeah. a dip. And then it's like 11 and like the, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. You know? And it's like when we were kids, you were probably the same way. Like you'd go surf like five times. You're totally cooked. You had like half yeah. a burrito. You're yeah. like totally baked from sitting in the sun all day. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I should have, like, fuck, I got out too early. No homework is getting done that night. You know? And then you're a little older and you're like, oh man, I'm just gonna go surf. I'll surf gentleman's hour, like kind of fat high tide, go grab two waves. It's kind of shitty and blown out, but like whatever. Oh yeah. It's ten, good. 10 a.m. is the golden hour. Oh, I, I know. People, it's funny. Like whether it's meetings for like calls yeah. or back when I was surfing, like getting up early to surf, I was like, no meetings before 10, no surf before 10. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's funny. I was just listening to a, a meat eater episode and uh, they read these questions and someone was asking about um, what they recommend um, to doing as a strategy when hunting a highly pressured public area. And uh, Ranella said, either go before everyone or after everyone. I mean, I've talked to so many biologists since moving to Montana through some of the work that I'm doing. And interestingly, I hear them say the exact same thing. If you want to get into elk, I heard a biologist who works in a very coveted region where people like fly in from across the country to go elk hunting. She's like, the elk are either a mile further than you're going to go on horseback or they're like right off the road. Yeah. And I do a lot of elk hunting and hunting in general, like under the, under the chair powder type thing. And I go like Tuesday at noon. Yeah. You know, because you think about it, you have the woods filling up with people, everybody's sunrise doing the thing, blowing, you know, their bugles or whatever, just out and about causing a ruckus in the environment. And then the animals are all stressed. They go and sit in their deep, shitty little holes in like the deepest, thickest, gnarliest little section of the draw. And then at two, they're like, I don't hear anything. I'm going to go move. I'm going to go get some water. Yeah. You know? Slater is famous for his early afternoon surfs. Dude. Just saunters on out of there at the crack of 1130. Well, I'm sure like, you know, in Santa Cruz, right? Like the wind gets on it later. Yeah. So you go surf somewhere like, I don't know, any in the hook. Yeah. There's probably half the crowd at two o'clock. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe there's, the waves aren't as good. But there's a lot of parallels for, for being able to beat the crowd. And even like... uh you know, like going and surfing down a spot like Puerto Escondido where there's this big beach break and yeah. you're essentially placing bets on different sandbars and there's always going to be one, the most crowded sandbar where the waves are going to be most consistent there. But if you go off a little bit and uh, find your own peak, you're not going to get as many – there's not going to be as many waves coming into that part of the beach, but the ones that do, you're going to get. Oh, yeah. I mean my favorite – surf of my life granted i love cold water has been surfing in norway really and there's people who surf up there but it's like 
there's just people just don't want to go up there because it's so cold. Yeah. You know, or even times where I think about surfing in Central America, like you go surf Nicar- Nicaragua. Like I was surfing from 12 to 3 every day. Yeah. Hottest hour of the day because nobody wants to go out. Yeah. It's like, whatever. I'll like wear an inch of zinc and like rash, you know, four rash guards and just like go out and charge. Dude, it's, I mean, well, it's, it's really, it's, I mean, this is an important point that you can go, uh, like, um, the world has a lot of natural space to explore. And there are these areas that are super packed. But if you go like three miles further than everyone else, you're going to be alone. I was just driving from Jackson through Yellowstone. And I was like, never been to Yellowstone. What do you got to do at Yellowstone? Got to see Old Faithful. Dude, it was like being at Disneyland. I was like, whoa, this is weird. But I was like, cool, this is kind of funny. Like, just this huge like jizz goes 30 feet out there just <laughs> sprays everyone like all right and then i i drove through north and like three miles later i was basically by myself there yeah. were like a couple little roads off that i uh, cruised and and uh saw one guy fly fishing and i went in like did a few casts and i was like oh i feel like i'm way out in the middle of nowhere right now but it's just because no one really makes it past that popular area I mean, Nevada. I've right. done a lot of work in Nevada, you know, working on horse films and eagle films and um, sheep, you know, bighorn sheep projects. I spent a, quite a bit of time out there, you know, more than a lot of states in the West. No, there are mountain I've literally been on top of mountains with biologists who work for the state. And I've said, how many people do you think go on top of, like, go up there? And they would say, maybe one a year. I mean, Nevada's pretty gnarly. Obviously, the heat can be prohibitive. But like there is so much country up there, more more BLM than more public land than any state in the country. The rubies, like go to Elko and go through the rubies. The rubies are like a mountain range you'd see here in Montana, but there's there's literally like a fraction of the people. Yeah. Or you just go into the desert in the spring. Go into Nevada in the spring or in the winter. There's so much country. Dude, I mean look at Greg fucking Long, dude. He's still finding new waves. And he just realizes, like, oh, no, people won't want to go there because right. it's like a war-torn country or they just won't do that extra mile of looking, that extra focus. Or you don't go the extra mile because everybody else is going the extra mile and you just go a mile in. Yeah. You know, like the, under the pow chairlift. There, we've had so many days hunting or snowboarding, skiing, whatever, where you're just like, it's in plain sight, but nobody wants to go because like, oh, it's got to be better a little bit further. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. don't kill yourself. Yeah. Go get your fill. Go harvest a little bit, and then you're home at eleven. You can do whatever the hell you want. Yep. Go garden, bird watch. Dude, you I'm, know, I'm in. You're speaking my language. <laughs> but dude, we've been going for an hour and a half. I could talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, you, uh, all right. Let's let's get let's give it people some good advice, some good adventure advice. If they're if they're looking for some adventures to do, and I'm going to keep this pretty open-ended. Let's say I come to you, I'm like, ah, oh, Charles, you live this freaking adventurous life. I want to go on an adventure this summer. Yeah. How should I do that? Gosh, well, okay, so it depends on where you are. Yeah. Right? And obviously with COVID, you want to like keep in mind crowds and rural communities best you can. Um, so I think all those things being said, gosh, I mean – I would look for places that don't have the crowds. Yeah. I would look, like we're talking about, I would look for that under the pow chairlift situation where you can go and cr- get some solitude. Because whether it's COVID or not, I think that you have some of the best experiences when you're not in that chaos at at Old Faithful or at Bridal Veil Falls in Yosemite, right? Like if you're going to Yosemite, go to Tuolumne Meadows and go into the backcountry. Or yeah. g- better yet, go over to the east side and go out 
onto the public lands of Nevada. Um, so I would say if somebody tells you to go to like that spot, like that national park, get on a map and look around it. Yeah. Because like outside of Glacier, there's a bunch of really amazing public forest lands by Big Fork where you can go on your hiking mountains that aren't in the park that look at the park. Yeah. So you have a view of the park. Yeah. I mean, the mountains outside my house are not in the park, but you're looking basically into the park. Yeah. So I would just say, yeah, like think about the spot. Yeah. And then look a little bit to the right or to the left, north or south on the map. I love that. You know? Have you ever seen the YouTube video of the guy who has security guards and some paparazzi around him? And within like 15, he's walking around New York City and by like 15 minutes, there's like this huge crowd of people that start forming. He's not a celebrity. He's a nobody. It's just a social experiment to show that people will want to gravitate towards something that they think is important. Conversely, there's the video of um, the guy playing uh, cello in the subway in New York City. Oh, yeah. I've seen Everyone's that. walking by him. He's like this famous cello player that people will pay thousands of dollars to. Playing to like see. a million dollar cello. Or was it? Was, yeah. Yeah. He's like, yeah, playing some million dollar cello. Yeah. He was the top guy in the world. And there's like, like the only person that stops is like this four year old girl for a minute. Well, and along those lines, there's a really cool series of videos that came out. Um, I believe they were taken in Europe of a girl. She's a, she's a graduate student in psychology, I want to say. And she gets these jobs at like you know, Deutsche Bank, these like, or some like for, you know, large international corporations. And she sits at her desk and just stares at the window and it shows there's like hidden cameras and it, she's just like staring out the window, like not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> and it shows these people like walking up to her and saying like, are you okay? And she's like, Oh no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then, you know, people stop and stare. And then like two people are like, are you okay? Do you want it to take you outside? Are you like, are you fine? Like you're not working. Like, are you Okay. And it's this whole thing of like, it's okay. I'm just taking a breath. You know, I'm just like looking out the freaking window for 20 minutes because I want to. Yeah. But, you know, they think like she's got to be sick. (laughs) Like she's not working. Dude, I went up, um, I went up, uh, castle, what's it called? Castle Rock. Oh yeah. Castle Storm Castle. Storm Castle. Castle. Yeah. I I hiked up that, uh, barefoot the other day. (laughs) It was kind of a mistake. I was like, yeah. I want to. Gets pretty re- sharp up top. Dude, it was fucking way sharper than I thought it was. But I had like probably a good like eighteen people be like, "Why are you barefoot, bro? Yeah, what's, what's going on with that?" I'm like, "Yeah, just you know, selling hemp necklaces. Yeah, just trying to get all hunter gatherery, <laughs> dude. Because my feet used to be rock hard from surfing. You know, like yeah. barefoot the whole time, and I've been like a month and a half. I got like baby bottoms feet now, dude. Now when I surf, my like. Do your, do your chest you get the the I can surf for like four <laughs> hours and then I'm like done for two days it's the oh, worst oh that's funny but yeah I mean gosh I think I think the adventure thing is just like take a moment look where the crowd's going and go a little bit the other way yeah. <laughs> Charles Post I've, I love you man you're the it's best so fun. you're the best where can people get in touch with you yes you can check me out uh, on Instagram at Charles underscore post or charlespost.com you can see some stuff on the internet here and there. And, cool. And yeah. any films that you've uh, worked on that you're especially proud of? Yeah, I just released a film with REI called Golden, which is about a friend, uh, Caitlin Davis. She's a raptor biologist, and it's a film that – it's a short film that really uh, celebrates this idea of, like, following your dreams and kind of beating the odds. Um, so you can check that out. That one, yeah, is out online. I think cool. REI's Vimeo on YouTube page. Awesome. Yeah. So thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, buddy. 
That's our show. I'm going to play out a song called Cigarettes and Summer by Mount St. Ilias. These guys listened to the podcast and they were nice enough to send me music. You can check out more of it in the description below. And if you're part of a band, you can email your music to info at kyle.surf. Info at kyle.surf is also where you can send recommendations for new guests or general feedback on the podcast. And don't forget, you can get 10% off at both RPM Training and Santa Cruz Medicinals by typing in the code name KYLE10. And please check out the Alaska Marine Conservation Council. They're doing great work, and they are a project of the Nell Newman Foundation. And finally, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, to check out my book club. This month is Atomic Habits. That's it for now. Get out in the water, my friends, whatever body of water you are closest to. Go ocean surfing, river surfing, skimboarding, sprinkler running, whatever. I promise it will make your day better. See you soon. on the vine Picture my surprise when I put one to my eye and a day gone by was living out its life inside If a day ever was up there it still is Yes, it's less than logical what was plus what if a day never dies it just changed to three, four
can go to bring to light the ships I passed at night. Now I know where I can go to bring to light the ships I passed.